Well, hey, good afternoon. Um, good to be with you all. Uh, if you're a guest this afternoon, uh, welcome. My name is Dominic, and uh, we say around here that our church, Missio, exists to be an authentic community that makes Jesus Christ fully known uh, so that others might come to fully know him. And so we hope that you experience that today as you're with us for this time of worship, uh, that you'd experience Jesus and you'd experience a community around you that uh, embraces and accepts you as you are and desires to encourage you in following and, and knowing Jesus. Um, today I'm going to talk about uh, our next, uh, next talk in our series on, called Being Made New. And one of the things I'll propose to you this morning uh, is this, that to be human is to worship. I was reminded of this uh, this week in a number of ways. Um, a perfectly hit golf shot, and the crowd just, ah. Walking down the street with my two boys, and there's a new house being built, and there's a cement truck and a cement pump trunk, and I don't know if you've ever seen a cement pump truck, but this thing has this amazing boom that goes, I don't know how many hundred feet in the air, and the cement truck's over here churning, and it dumps it into this pump truck, and the pump truck goes and reaches out and pours this foundation. And in the eyes of a four-year-old, just he worshipped. He literally, Dad, these trucks. Uh, playing in the backyard with, again, the boys and a bird. We got this, this nest of blue jays, and a blue jay swoops down and t- barely touches the ground and lifts back up, and the other one comes and chases it. And in the eyes of a 14-month-old, just, I mean, it took his breath away. Just worshipped in awe. Uh, sitting around this week with uh, some really courageous men, uh, talking about the struggles that all men share with the realities of, of lust and covetousness in our hearts and how just our hearts were created to look for beauty and long for things. And at times, we just can't even handle it. <laughs> worship. To be human is to worship. Today, I want to again talk about worship and, and what that looks like and how worship plays a part in this process of our being made new. And while the impulse to worship is innate from a 14-month-old on, and he probably even worshipped things before he was 14 months old, I've seen him. While that's innate, I think what I mean by the word worship and what, the way that we all would define the word worship, uh, what I propose to you too is that that varies. We as a culture, as a people, we don't have a common sense and understanding uh, one clear way that we would define worship. And so what I want to look at today is the, the reality of the way that the Bible describes worship and the way that the Bible defines worship. In our English culture, often if we were to try to define worship, we would go to the etymology of the English word worship, and it's commonly understood to mean to ascribe worth to. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Um, that's partially true. But when we hold that as the base definition, to just, just to ascribe worth to something, what that naturally causes us to think of is ascribing being done with words, right? That, that we, we, we're giving something worth just through, through declaring it, through speaking it. And so that naturally leads us to this, wor- this, this notion that worship is primarily verbal. And so we might talk about the fact that we, what we just did was worship because it involved music, but that what we're doing now isn't worship. And so again, it's easy to understand that our contemporary understanding of worship is most closely linked to, to song, to music. But what I want to look at today is the, the English words of, of the English word worship in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And then what we're going to see actually is that the word worship in Scripture has very minor emphasis on music at all. Uh, music is rarely actually associated with worship in the New Testament. 
And in the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, worship is altogether not even spoken of in terms of connection with music. Now, instruction on worship and how the people were to worship is talked about ad nausea almost, but you won't find music at all linked to the way that the people are called to worship God in the first five books of the Bible. And so when we look at Scripture and we look at uh, this word worship, here's what I propose to you what we're going to find this morning or this afternoon is that biblical worship is mostly about posture, about disposition, and about ritual. Biblical worship is about posture, it's about disposition, and it's about ritual. And I want to look at these one by one. And to look at the first one, we look at posture. And, and basically the question we're asking when we talk about posture with worship is uh, where and how does the act of worship happen? Posture. Where and how does the act of worship happen? And so to help us to start out, I want to look at Psalm 95. Um, and if you're familiar with Psalm 95, you know that Psalm 95 is actually used by the church, used by worship leaders, worship pastors, actually to be, uh, it's a psalm that is considered like the song to teach us about worship because it talks about music. And what I'd propose to you is that this psalm, yes, does teach us about music, but not because of its talk about music but because it's talk of something else. And so let's read it together. We're going to read Psalm 95, verse 1 to 7. And it goes like this. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him, who, to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And we'll stop there. Verse Section C of verse 7 begins to go on to this other, other portion of the psalm. And so again, if you're familiar with this, and even as I read that, you go, oh, certainly, Worship is about music. I mean, look at verse 1 and 2 where he calls them to, to come and let's sing these songs. Let's make noise. Let's go into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise. I think, for, again, for sure, the psalm opens with a call to enthusiastic praise of God. Verse 1 and 2 clearly show that. And verse 3 and 5 tell us exactly why that's to be. It's because of who God is. It's acknowledging who he is. That he's the God of all things. He's the Lord of all things. So clearly, yes, this psalmist is saying ascribe praise, give praise to God. But if we're looking, at the, if looking for the English word worship and looking at where that exists within the Old Testament and in this psalm in particular, we don't actually see it until verse 6. After all this talk of, of noise and of sound and all that, verse 6 is where we actually see this command to worship. O come, let us worship and bow down. And let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. See, I think what the psalmist actually had in mind in verses 1 and 2 in that initial command or that invitation to come and worship, I think what the psalmist had there, it was probably in mind that this sound of singing as the people were making their way to Zion in response to God's invitation, his gracious invitation for them to come and be in his presence. And so he's inviting them, come with me, and as we go, as we go on this journey, let's sing. As we go along the way, let's, let's praise God. As we go along the way, yes, let's, let's give gratitude to God, acknowledging who he is. But once they get there in the presence of God, we see that the psalmist actually calls or commands them to something very different. Not loud praise, and praise means the lifting up of ourselves in the presence of something, 
But what he calls them to is worship. And then the Hebrew word, histahawa, which is worship here, it appears 127 times in various forms throughout the Old Testament. And this is, this is what histahawa means. It refers to a physical gesture of prostration out of respect and honor before a superior. The word worship actually means to prostrate yourself or to bow down, to kneel down. It has actually nothing to do with music nor with praise. But it's a posture. And it's not just a posture of heart or a posture of mind, but it's an actual physical posture that reveals what is the posture of your heart and of your mind. He says, come, let us worship And he connects it, again, to two other physical phrases that speak to worship in the Old Testament. To bow down and to kneel before the Lord, our Maker. The psalmist links these words, and he's not the only one that does that. But it's it's this posture, it's this physical gesture of respect and of honor. And what's interesting in Psalm 95 is that it happens at a transitional point of this corporate expression of worship, or this corporate call to worship. It's after the, the, the call to use song, And it's right before, the reason why I stopped at 7C is because 7C actually takes us into now where there's actually the recording of of divine wording, divine speech. And so you're on this journey, the picture of the psalm is that you're on this journey together as a community. And yes, you're singing as you're on this journey. And then when you get in the presence of God, right before God speaks, starting in 7C, the psalmist says, hold on, hold on, hold on, we got to stop. Stop all the noise. Stop all the singing. Stop all this this, this distractive stuff. And because God's about to speak to us. And so what we need to do first is just bow down. What we need to do is humble and lower ourselves, physically prostrate ourselves before God, our creator, our maker. Why? Because he's, he's about to speak. He's about to say something to us. He's the God that created us. He's the God that spoke creation into the world. And he's the God that still speaks today. And, and so we need to just stop. We need to make ourselves humble. We need to make ourselves low. Because this God of love, this God of creation, this God of power and of majesty and of might, this God who is the God of all, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he graciously invited us into his presence. Let's just, let's stop and do what's proper. And the only thing proper is to acknowledge he's God and we're not. And so we bow ourselves, we kneel, we prostrate ourselves. Why? Because by his grace, we are the people of his pasture. This world is his, this earth is his. He created it and by grace, we're his people and he invites us to know him. He goes on. He says, because we're the sheep of, of, his, of his pasture. We're the people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. Again, that, that wording of a sheep. Think about a sheep. Not that smart, not that great, not that amazing. And the psalmist says, yeah, we, we need to acknowledge that in, in the presence of God, as we stand before God, the only thing proper, the only thing right is that we, we would just prostrate ourselves. We would humble ourselves. Not just of heart and of mind, but actually Physically. Acknowledge we're in the presence of the king. See, what the psalmist understands is that corporate worship fundamentally involves audience with God. And that what the psalmist understands fundamentally is I think what we see and know to be true anytime, even if you were to look at, think about royalty or, or anything like that today, that when you're in the presence of someone who is superior than you, by a great, great degree, what they say and what they speak to you is of far more importance what you say and speak to them. Do you follow me with that? 
what God has to say when we come into worship is of far more importance actually than what we say to him through a lot of noise and a lot of lights and sounds and whistles and all that stuff. And so the psalmist says that biblical worship actually begins with posture. A posture of heart, a posture of mind, but yes, even carries over into a physical posture. We see the same thing uh, in Exodus 34. As I was reading through the, the Old Testament, you begin to see this, that all throughout, anytime the word worship is associated, it's not even associated again with music, with sound, with all of that, but it's, it starts with this posture. Exodus 34, you might be familiar with it. I love this, this passage of scripture. It's, it's where uh, Moses actually receives from God uh, the, 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 the tablets, excuse me, the Ten Commandments. Um, and I'm going to start reading it in verse 5. And it says, Then the Lord descended. So here, here's, the, here's God. And he welcomes Moses into his presence. And he comes down. And he descends in the cloud. And he, he stood with Moses there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. He told Moses who he was. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The very first place in Scripture where God clearly speaks in his own words who he is, describes himself, says, this is my name, this is who I am. Moses is there standing. And the only proper response for Moses was worship. But it wasn't through him saying anything in worship. It wasn't through him singing something. It wasn't through him yelling, shouting anything. What it, the only proper response, the true act of worship was for him to histahawa, to physically prostrate himself before God in acknowledgement, you are God and I am not. And what you are speaking to me is of the greatest worth. Who you are and the grace you've allowed to invite me into relationship and to know you is of the greatest worth to me. And I have nothing, nothing proper. My body, my mind, my heart can do nothing but just prostrate myself before you and acknowledge who you are. Worship you with all of who I am. Spirit, soul, and body. And it manifests itself in this physical way. If we were to flip to the New Testament, and I'm looking at my time, so we're not going to do it. But what I'd propose to you is this, is that if we go to the New Testament, the actual uh, definition or the, the instruction, the way that the Scripture speaks of worship being played out is the same. It's not with a whole bunch of song. It's not with a whole bunch of bells and whistles. The first place that we see the word worship in the New Testament is when the, um, the wise men, they follow the star and what do they do? They end up where? They end up in the manger. And it says they come before and they enter into Mary's presence. They enter into baby Jesus' presence. And what do they do? It says they bow down and they worship. Different word because now we're talking about Greek, but the same, the same word, same meaning. But to truly worship Christ for them too it wasn't to, to yell and declare and do a whole bunch of stuff. It wasn't to go grab instruments and all that. But it was to just simply bow down, physically prostrate themselves. I do want to look with you here in Revelation, because this, again, is the same Greek word in, um, in the New Testament, in Revelation. And this is, this is now a picture of the throne room, the place where we'll be worshiping God forever and ever and ever. And Revelation 5 says this, starting in verse 11. It says, And then I looked. And I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. 
everything, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. It's not to say that all that talking and all that stuff prior wasn't worship. But in some regards, the Bible is showing us that worship, as defined by God, as defined as He revealed it to His people, worship isn't about a bunch being said. Worship is about the posture before God that bows down in acknowledgement that you are God. And in your presence, in the acknowledgement of this grace with which I've received to know you, there's nothing that is right, there's nothing that is appropriate, there's nothing that I actually can physically handle but to just bow down in front of you and acknowledge that I am yet but a sheep of your pasture. I am but a person in your hand. You are God. I am a created being. And so I prostrate myself before you to declare, yes, your worth, to ascribe to you worth with my whole being. Revelation 7, we see similar. Verses 9 uh, to 12, it says, this is after I looked, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Listen to this. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hand. And as they were standing, they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And next to them, all the angels were there too. And the angels were standing, standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their face before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here, the author is very clear. John is very clear. There's a a standing and an ascribing of praise, but then there is a bowing down that is true worship that God has described and calls us to. And so as we start looking at biblical worship, we can't speak of it without this physical gesture of submission and of honor before God. That is an outward expression of inwardly what we believe to be true, that our heart and our mind is is bowed before God as creator. But inevitably, what we move to from posture pretty quickly is this idea of of disposition. And by disposition, what we're talking about then is whose worship is acceptable to God. Because there are examples actually of people coming before God in a physical posture of prostrating themselves down before him. And he says to them, even to his own people throughout many of the books of the Old Testament. He says to them, you come with, yes, a physical posture, but that's, a, that's filthy to me. It's actually unacceptable to me. Because there's also this question of disposition. And so to look at this in disposition, I want to go to Genesis 22. And Genesis 22, again, if you're familiar, as I say that, you know that this is the interaction between the Lord and between Abraham. And this is God calling Abraham to do what? to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And in Genesis 22, we actually see the very first time that the word worship is spoken of um, when, when Abraham, says, Abraham takes Isaac and he says to his servants who had come and helped him get to that place, he says to him, hey, you guys stay here. God had already given him the instruction of what he was to do. And he said to them, you guys stay here while the boy and I go to worship. Go to build this altar, build this place to bow down before God. And, but in Genesis uh, 22, 7 and 8, we see this. We see that Abraham says, uh, and Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said to him, my, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. 
And so from that point, Abraham goes up. He takes Isaac. He binds him. We know that. He builds the altar. He lays him down. He lifts his hand. And the angel of the Lord, God himself, speaks and says, no, 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 don't do that. Do not lay a hand on that boy. And in response then, uh, Abraham says, well, where are you? And he says, here I am. And in verse 12, it says this. And he, the angel of the Lord, said, again, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything for him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your one and only son from me. And so if biblical worship starts with this posture of being prostrate or acknowledging bowing down, it moves quickly to disposition. And we're talking about disposition of worship in the, in the, in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. Very quickly we encounter this word fear. Again, the very first time that we see the word worship in the Bible is here in Genesis 22 in the English word. And it's immediately connected to fear. Fear of God. Now again, in the English word, just like worship, we don't think of it properly. English, we think immediately of what? Fright and anxiety, Right? Something terrifying, something that I need to run from, something that I don't want to be near. The Hebrew word is different, and the Greek word is different as well. And it exhibits a wide range of meanings. And the wide range of meanings are this. Yes, it does start with terror and with fright, but it moves then to anxiety, which isn't good either. But now it jumps then to awe, to reverence, submission, allegiance, ultimately to trust. See, in Abraham's case here, fear certainly meant the right side of the spectrum. It certainly meant awe, reverence, submission, allegiance, trust. I believe even from the very beginning. Because he wouldn't say in verse 7 and 8 to his son, he wouldn't say, don't worry about where the lamb is. Don't worry about that. God will provide. How do you say that unless you are a person who is in awe of God? Not terror or fear, but in awe. And not only awe, but reverence. Not only reverence, but living your life in submission. And not only in submission, but in allegiance that nothing can steal you from. And not only allegiance, but trust. That even to the point that God says, come and give me the most valuable thing to you. Give me the thing that you've longed and waited for and desired your whole entire life. And that only I could give to you and I did graciously give to you. Now I'm asking, I'm requesting, would you give it back to me? And what does Abraham do? Surely, he marches up there. No questions asked. God will provide. That's fear. That's the disposition that God calls us to in worship. This odd trust, this, this submission, complete submission, this total allegiance that gives itself, that gives its heart, that gives its mind to nothing else but to God himself and to God alone. See, I think what Abraham was fully embodying, and for time's sake I won't go there, but in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses wrote and he told and he called the people, actually I will read it, go to Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 to 13, Moses writes this, He's giving the people these instructions to have circumcised hearts. And he says, Oh, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding for you today for your good. To fear God, to live in reverence, in submission, allegiance, trust in accordance to these commands, these instructions, which God has graciously given for what? For your good. That you might find life in the place where there really only truly is life. But to experience it requires this fear of the Lord, requires this worship that is about a disposition of reverence, of submission, of allegiance, of trust. Now again, if we were to go to the New Testament, we would find that the phrase, the fear of God, 
Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. It's spoken of in Acts. Peter writes about it. Then the word, this fear of Christ, Paul writes about it in Ephesians. And in Hebrews, we'll look there, Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, the author of Hebrews, who is unknown to us, he too writes about worship, and it's about this disposition. And he writes this, and he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship. Acceptable worship has coupled with it reverence and awe, fear, submission, allegiance, trust. What I propose to you is that the author of Hebrews here, when he's talking about service, as it's translated in some of maybe the translation you have, as he speaks of acceptable service and worship, he's not talking about the acts and the things that you and I do here on a Sunday morning in a worship service to serve one another. But what he's talking about as as service and as worship, what he's talking about is our whole lives being presented before God. It's the expression that speaks of true surrender to the Lord that drives our lives in its entirety. And I believe that's consistent too with the Old Testament picture, especially what we just read in Deuteronomy, that this call to worship, it isn't just about certain times and certain places. It isn't just about when the people are gathered together. But there's an individual and there's a corporate nature to worship that all of it starts with this posture, moves quickly to this disposition, and then, yes, plays itself out in ritual. And by ritual, what I mean is this, life practice. And so we're asking the question as we talk about ritual or life practice, what we're asking is, what is considered an expression of devotion to God? Because that's what a ritual is, right? When you think of a ritual, it's, it's an expression of devotion to someone or to something, whether corporate or individual. And so with worship, ritual, we're talking about life practice, and we're saying, what's considered then an expression of devotion to God? Now in the Old Testament, if we were to do a survey and look at a bunch of scriptures, what we would see is that the ritual actions or the life practices that they were called to were pilgrimages to Jerusalem for sacred feasts, participation in fellowship and in sin offerings, participation in temple dedications, as well as a bunch of rites, rituals that they were called to do at home. Circumcision, purification rituals, all kinds of things. When we move to the New Testament, if we were to do a survey of it, what we would see, and one of the things we might talk about first, would be Acts 2.42, where the people were ritually dedicated to the instruction of the apostles, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, as well as a lot of different ordinances, baptism, and then the Lord's Supper, right? John 13, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul instructs us to, to do these things, these ritual acts. And what we would see actually along with these is that hardly ever are any of these connected to music. But again, each one of these is a life practice or a ritual, something special, a dedicated practice, again, to help us worship in a way and remember in a way that actually at times we fail to worship with our whole lives. And so God has called us into these things. And it's not about music. Again, it's about the physical presence and posture, posturing ourselves before God in his presence. A representation then of what is going on in terms of disposition in our heart and our mind to go, God, we trust you. We give allegiance to you and, and only to you. And what we find when we do look at a couple of passages in the Old Te- New Testament, which I want to do, as Paul instructs us concerning worship, what we're going to see here is Paul writes in Ephesians and Colossians about worship and ritual acts or life experience. Paul does speak of, of some music, some songs, some language, but it's all within the context of appealing to believers to let all of life, rather than just some parts or some aspects of life, to let all of life be a ritual to be an expression 
of devotion to God. I want to look at Ephesians with you. Ephesians 5, 15 uh, to 21. Paul writes this. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's talking about a full-orbed, a full-orbed picture of worship. A full-orbed picture of a, of a posture dedicated to God. Yeah, and he says, singing in your hearts. But the words that come out then are words of, of encouragement, words of, of, of love, words of kindness, words of respect, words of even submission to one another. Out of what? Out of first living in fear and in awe, submission to God. Flip over to Colossians, and in Colossians 3, we see Paul writes very similar. Colossians 3, uh, 12 to 17. He says, put on then as God's chosen people, those set apart to God, holy and beloved, Set apart for God and loved by God in a unique and beautiful way. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what I propose to you is that when Scripture talks about worship, Old Testament and New Testament, what Scripture paints actually this picture of is there really is nothing sacred and secular. There really is no divide. But that we as those who by grace have been called and invited into relationship with God is that it's now this holistic self. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That all of life is to be worship. That starts with posture. That moves to disposition. That moves to this understanding of that every single life practice. Because all of it is done with the very breath that God himself has placed within me. All of life is to be an act of worship to God. And I believe Scripture takes it one step further. Again, talking kind of about the question of disposition. What does God accept or not? I want to flip real quick to Micah 6. Micah 6, 6 to 8. And some of you guys might be familiar with these, these smaller minor prophet books. Many of them written to the people of God by these prophets as God tells them, look, my people are down there worshiping. They're making all kinds of noise, but their worship actually is detestable to me because it's not done with the right posture nor the right disposition. They're greedy they're prideful, they're rude, they're arrogant. Instead of living for justice and for the freedom of all, they're oppressing other people. And so the prophet Micah actually comes and says to the people of God, he says to them in verses 6, 6 to 8, asking, what does the Lord require? What does appropriate worship look like? Here's the question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And now look, he's going he's to list off some life practices, some rituals. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with a calf that's a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? No, that, that's an abominable practice to God. No, don't do that. With the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
Do I have to give my own death? No, no, no. Christ did that for you. But here, verse 8. He's told you, my people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you hear the language there of, of posture? Yes, it might be speaking of an upright walking posture, but it's, it's a humbled posture. Do you hear the disposition? This disposition that loves and acknowledges its kindness. It's loving towards God. And now these ritual, these life practices, that the life practices of worship before God, it's justice. If biblical worship starts with, with posture and moves to disposition and then moves to life rituals, what I'd propose to you is that true worship from a scriptural biblical standpoint It's the embodiment and the love and the justice of God. And so if we want to talk about church being made new, yes, it's appropriate that we've talked about the fact that only the Holy Spirit is the one who can transform and make us new. Yes, it's appropriate to talk about the the role of confession in being made new and and in these other things being looking to scripture as I talked about last week to being made new. Talk about engaging in community authentically and honestly to be made new. But what I believe that will honestly make us more new than anything else is embracing a biblical posture of worship. Which means that you and I come to this place in this understanding of fear of God, meaning it's about my allegiance to Him and to nothing else. It's about trusting Him, even to the point where if He were to say, give to me the very thing that you prize most in this life, I would say, yes, God, it's yours, because I'd acknowledge that I actually only have this, and I've actually only received this by the hands of your grace and your mercy in my life. So anything that I have, anything that you would call me to give up, any place that you would call me to go, anything that you would invite me to do out of your grace and your mercy, for my goodness, I will give it up to you. I will surrender it to you. Why? Because you are God. I am but a sheep of your pasture. I am but a person in the hand of the God who created me. And so we might actually find ourselves in this physical posture, kneeling or bowing before God, because it's just an outward symbol of the inward expression that my heart and my mind is devoted only to God out of his grace for me, because he gave his son Christ for me, who both died for me and resurrected for me, And I don't want to worship then anything else in this life, but I only want to worship the one where I can truly actually find real life. Because we come to this place, church is saying, in this process of being made new, I'm honest about the sin, and I'm honest about the longings, and I'm honest about the fact that I often shrink the cross. Why? Because I continually worship other things. I continually prostrate myself before other things, and I look for life where there actually is no life. But God says, come. He says, come. Come in my grace and come be with me. Come close to me. Come be near me. Come live life with me. Come walk with me. And I'll make you new through this process. I think the other piece of, of talking about worship, and I, I, I want to talk to this just, just clearly. Uh, what, I, I don't think, though, because of where we stand in time, and Christ has come, He's died, He's resurrected, we're living here, and we live fully only by grace. And so even our worship is to be by grace. And so I don't, I don't want you to think that there's some picture painted here of what is perfect worship. 
I don't think Old Testament disposition plays out the same way New Testament does. Does that make sense? The question of whose worship is acceptable before God. What we live under in the New Covenant is this picture where, where God says, uh, your worship, I receive it through the worship actually of my son Jesus. And so Jesus lived a life of perfect worship. Jesus worshiped all the time. Spirit, soul, body, heart, mind, everything. Jesus worshiped the Father perfectly all the time. And it's his life of worship marked by surrender and trust that makes our worship acceptable and pleasing to God. And so I hope what you hear me calling you to today is, is devotion to Christ and actually more greater trust in Christ, faith in Christ. Because that will be the worship that is truly pleasing and honoring to God. But again, I said in this series, we talk about some things practically. And so I, I, I want to talk practically about a couple of things as we look at some application. Question number one would be this. How would or could all these practices of life be transformed, be made new, if you took the posture and the disposition of worship to God? And what I mean by these practices of life, I invite you to think about, again, that when Scripture's talking about our lives, though, again, there are specific things that we are called to that in some degree could be called and set apart as sacred, and that's right, that's appropriate. Really, life, God says all of our life is sacred. And so, work marriage, parenting, dating, play, rest, travel, any of it, all of it, how could those life practices, how could those actually be more transforming, more life-giving? How could those actually make you more new if you took the posture and the disposition of worship towards your work or towards your rest? I think some of us might work more because we realize we're actually kind of slacking, but some of us might work far less because we'd realize they're actually worshiping work as opposed to being obedient to take Sabbath, to take rest, to be recreated? How would your finances be stewarded differently if you took a posture and a disposition of work, or a posture of worship to God? Every penny I have, every single one, it's actually not my own. It came from God. By the grace of God only do I have it. And so I kneel before the Lord with everything that I have and say, this is yours. You tell me where you want it, how you want it spent, where it goes. Because I trust you. And you might call me to, to, to give more than I would do. But I trust you. Because you're God. With my parenting, I've been asking myself, with parenting, how would my parenting change if I took the posture and disposition of worship in my home every single day? How would my marriage be different if I took the posture? How would your dating relationships be different if you took that posture? And so you don't get overwhelmed and I did this myself this week, what would it look like if you started with just one thing this week? So that we don't get overwhelmed by this all or nothing thinking like, oh my God, I gotta do all this this week, whatever. What would be one thing? What's one area where you hear this and you go, yeah, I, I get it. That one area of my life could actually be radically different. And I want it to be if I took the, the, the posture and disposition of worship before God this week as I go about this one thing. I did that this week. I kind of took one thing in mind each day. And I said, Lord, help me view this with worship to you. Number two, and this goes along with what I did this week. What if you adopted a, a physical posture of worship this week to start your day? Kneeling or bowing before the Lord for five minutes each day. As you thought about that one thing you're going to engage. And that might sound extreme. That might sound crazy. 
I did it every single day this week. I took actually 10 minutes and I just said, Lord, as I start my day, and some days I couldn't do it at the beginning, so I found a pocket and I just, I just knelt down. And there actually, there was something about physically being down on the ground, just laying quiet, nobody else around us in the moment of solitude, for even just for 10 minutes, that really changed just the disposition of my heart and the way I began, to, when I stood up and began to walk and go to think about that one thing, there was something I, I could tell you mysteriously that was, that was different. And I say that not to sound crazy, not to sound fanatical, but honestly, something about physically just going, Lord, I'm, 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 but I came from dust and I'm going to return to dust, so I'm just going to sit here for 10 minutes in dust and you're God. And I, I need you and I'm inviting you to be God and be Lord over this thing. And I picked a different thing each day. What could that look like for you? To physically prostrate, bow yourself before the Lord. I dare you to try it. See what happens. And thirdly, what practice could you adopt to help you be aware of your disposition in your life practices? Meaning this, what, what, what could you maybe do that allows you to acknowledge disposition? When you find yourself this week in different scenarios and you go, what could help you to go, oh, that's actually not a worshipful posture nor disposition? That anger, <laughs> that's not worship. That greed, oh, that's not worship. That whatever it is, does that make sense? Well, what could you, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's a timer that just goes off at some point in your work or goes off in your day that it reminds you to go, oh, wait, today I'm, I'm called to worship God. I've been graciously invited into relationship with him, and I, I want to go about my day worshipfully. I, I want my heart, my mind, my whole being. I want to love God today with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I'm, I'm going I'm to put this there. And lastly, I don't have it written up here, but in terms of thinking about the fact that I believe true biblical worship actually leads us to live out a life of, of the love and the justice of God, what would be one thing even this week that you could take and you could say, you know, as an act of worship, I'm going to do this to bring about love and justice in the world. Because a lot of this stuff here, to a degree, is about us and our relationship with the Lord in those things. But I truly believe true biblical worship moves us out into the world to fight for and bring about the justice of God. And so what would be one thing where you go, you know what, this week, yeah, I'm going to do these things as well, but I want to go and I want to find one way that I can give towards or I can fight for or I can advocate for the love and the justice of God in an area where currently it doesn't exist. And I believe if we began to live with this posture, this disposition of biblical worship, we would each be made new. And lastly, I'll say this then too. You know what it'll do? When each of us begins to live in this posture of worship individually, you know what happens to our worship when we come together corporately in here? Or when we gather in our homes, missional communities, Bible studies, whatever it is, corporately? You know how that changes too? I propose to you, it changes radically. We don't stand and we don't sit and sing a song, here's my heart, Lord, and have it just kind of go over our head. Because we'll have lived out every, every day with this understanding of my heart is only but yours. My heart actually only has life in it because of you. And so now we come to this place and we sing it. And maybe we do find ourselves even in a public place on our knees. And we don't care. Because it's not, when worship isn't about the approval or the applause of those in the room with us. Remember, what the psalmist wrote is that biblical worship is always focused on being in the audience of the one who you're worshiping. And what they say back to you is the only thing that matters. What they say back to you is far more important, actually, than what we say to them. And so I want to invite you today to, to come and worship. We're going to close out with worship. But before we do worship in, in song and in music, I want to invite us, actually, to, just to take three minutes of silence. Because again, biblical worship, as it's been described, it, it really hardly ever has music associated with it. Not to say our practice is wrong. There's, there's reasons for it. 
But as we move into this place of worship and before we come to communion, I'm going to give us three minutes. I'm, I'm going to start, Kelly will start a timer and he'll, he'll lead that. But you're going, to have, you're going to have some minutes here, some moments here, just to even sit silently before the Lord. And yeah, if you, if you find yourself that you feel, man, just in this moment, the only thing I can do is, is kneel, is bow, whatever, go for it. Nobody cares. Nobody's watching. Nobody's looking. But what I want to invite you to, to, to do when you're ready, whether it's after the moment of silence or after our, our worship through song, is to come and worship at the table. Come and receive with a posture of humility and, of, and this disposition of, of, of surrender, of trust. Come to this table and take this cracker and dip it in the juice. The cracker which represents the body of Christ and the juice which represents the blood of Christ, both of these which were made possible to be broken for us because why? Because Christ first took the disposition and the posture of lowliness. Philippians 2 says that he who was God, he who in his very nature is God, he humbled himself. He became nothing. He took the posture of a sheep. He took the posture of humanity. He came and he literally laid himself, laid out, laid on the ground for three days in the grave, laid down in the dirt. That's the type of posture that he took for us. And because he did that, and because God raised him from the dead, Philippians says, he's worthy then of every knee bowing at the sound of his name and every tongue confessing his glory and his goodness. So I, I invite you that, to come to this table and to worship and to remember that the posture that God asks us to take before him <laughs> is the posture that amazingly and graciously he actually took for us first. Humbled himself, laid down to show our worth and our value in his sight that he loves us, that you are his beloved and he invites you into relationship. Forgiven, free, whole, made new in Christ. So come and worship and receive.